0: Welcome to RPG Storytime, the channel where we take stories generated out of role-playing games and narrate them in short, digestible segments. Today we continue Gangbusters, the 1920s game of mysteries, mobsters, and mayhem. The module is Death on the Docks, by Mark Akers. I meet again with my client late at night in our apartment. I've got little to tell her. Actually, that's not true. I've got a lot to tell, but little I want to share. I mostly tell her my leads. that I managed to steal some paperwork. And although none of it is directly incriminating, it provides me with information that could implicate Flynn in one of his many schemes. Everyone knows his hands are dirty in many different pots, I say. The problem is proving it. I would appreciate the proof coming as soon as possible, Mr. Griebel. she says, barely hiding her accent anymore. I do have one question for you that will make things easier, I say. Who is Comrade Leon? I've touched a nerve with her. Catherine's eyes blink wide for a quick moment. Then she tries to hide her surprise. She waits to speak until the shock has gone from her voice. He is no one of any concern to you, but what if... Keep your eyes on Flynn. Those blue eyes have somehow grown colder and darker, like I've just sunk deeper into the ocean. Her glare alone feels like it's grappled me, and I'm at her mercy. Yes, ma'am, is all I hear myself saying, and I leave. I am unable to categorize this encounter within the scheme of everything else until I have returned to the car... And even then, I only do so while driving away. A.J. is experiencing an intimidation of her own, sitting in the office of the chief editor at her paper. You haven't turned anything in all week, he says. I know. That's because I'm working on something really big. I should have the first parts of it for you next week. You do know that this is a daily newspaper, right, Miss True? Yes, sir. I can't have a placeholder on my paper that reads, This part blank due to pending story coming up. No, sir, but if you're working on something big, I need you to also do a couple smaller fluff pieces. Or softball political stories. I have something regarding George Raft. That story's BS. Take this one instead. The mayor's giving a speech out in front of City Hall today at 2. Go down there and cover it. After learning that AJ will be tied up for most of the day, I go to meet with Max Doyle, the district attorney. We kept on good terms while I was on the force, something that couldn't be said by a lot of officers. His colorful methods weren't for everyone. I weave through the crowd of gamblers in his office exchanging their bets on the next horse race. The radio in the corner fills them in on the latest information. I get through the door on the other end and ask his secretary to let me speak with Max. She does, and he greets me with his usual gruff and bombastic personality. Grebel, you old bastard! What do you want? He always assumes everybody wants something from him because he always wants something from them. That riot down by the docks, I say. You mixed up in all that? He asks, in a manner of speech. So you want me to drop the charges on you? What are you willing to offer? Not mixed up like that. I want to know about the lawyer that bailed out Flynn's boys. Was it a guy named Arthur Baldwin? Yeah! Where'd you get his name? I got a whole file on Flynn's dealings. The kind of folder that can unravel Flynn's shenanigans. Make a DA look good. Greeple, if you have evidence on a case, it's best you reveal it and leave it to my office and the police too. I need you to arrest one of Flynn's men. Who? I don't care. Any of them. I need Baldwin in the jailhouse bailing them out. Today. And what do I get in return? You'll get Flynn, high profile, and a mountain of evidence that you collected. He considers a moment while he flips a pin in his hands. Then he says, deal, so I leave before he can change his mind. What I didn't tell Max was that I had visited Arthur Baldwin earlier that day on the pretext that I would need to hire him. He had let me in his office, and while there, I had paced around a bit. After complimenting him on one of his pictures on his wall, I had discreetly unlocked one of the windows. Baldwin had become my target because he was named in the folder I had taken from the dock. The folder itself had provided me with a lot of names and schedules of events, but nothing solid that could be used as evidence. But it did reveal to me that attorney Arthur Baldwin had all the dirty laundry. Anytime something needed to be done, he hid the information. And the best part was that the combination to Baldwin's safe was kept in these files in case anything ever happened to him, and Flynn or his flunky union boss needed to get into it. I watched the window I had unlocked from my car. It isn't facing an alley, but it is the least busy street around the building. I wait for Max to follow through with his promise, and sure enough, a little after eleven, Baldwin grabs his hat and coat and leaves the office. I stroll casually up to the window, keeping an eye in every direction. Several people are about, enough to cause problems, so I wander by without stopping. I stroll slowly, waiting for people in the area to disperse. Just as those people disappear, more arrive. They're thin in number, but they're ever-present almost as though they're in a tag team. I walk around a corner, then turn around and head back. As I near the building, all is beginning to look empty enough for me to make my move. But just then, a little old lady rounds the corner and comes down my sidewalk. I linger, moving as though I have nothing better to do. One by one, everyone disappears except that stupid lady. She spots me, smiles and nods. I nod back with a tense face, my head bobbing quickly as if begging her to do the same. She doesn't get the hint and just moseys by, her cane smacking the sidewalk in a rhythm as though teasing me. Time is slipping by. Baldwin won't take long at the police station and I'll lose my only opportunity. The rest of the street is clear. Why does this one lady have to be here? So I stop and look at the sky across the street as though I spotted something. I glare curiously, as though something terribly fascinating is there. The little old lady stops and looks as well. I'm staring into the sun so she has to shield her eyes to see it. I take the opportunity to hurry to the window. I glance at her quickly to make sure she's still looking, and I slide the window open. Not pressing my luck, I step away from the window just in time for her to look away from the sun. I've walked a few feet away from the window by the time she notices where I am, and she pays me no mind. By the time she has passed and at least isn't looking my way, another stranger comes along and crosses the street. I just lean against the building as though waiting for someone. By the time this new person has wandered out of sight, that little old lady is still there, but she's still not looking my way, so I make my move and climb in the window. Inside the office, I quickly remove my shoes. I had noticed earlier how loud they clatter across the hard wood, and the secretary is still in the next room. I already know where the safe is, just behind the desk, so I scurry to it. There, I twist the knob one way, then the other, hitting the right numbers until it finally clicks. Just then, there's another click. The door opens. I duck down behind the desk. The secretary enters and crosses right toward me. I can tell by the clacks of the high heels on the hardwood floor. I wonder how I might be able to knock her out without seeing my face. Or perhaps threaten her enough not to look. She stops just in front of the desk. I hear papers dropped on its surface. Just above my head. She's leaving something for him. I take in a breath of relief. Then remember... The window is open and my shoes are right next to it. My mind returns to how I might be able to knock her out. This time it might be safer since she's walking away from my position. When I peek over the desk, I see that she's not heading toward the window. She's leaving the room, and she's looking down at some other paper. Dumb luck. I hate relying on that, but I'll take it. As soon as the door is closed behind her, I open the safe and pull everything out. There's a bunch of paperwork and a lot of money. I put back some files that I know don't have anything to do with Flynn. I want my load to be as light as possible, but I want to make sure I get everything I can. I grudgingly put back the money too, well, most of it. Then I head back to the window. I slip on my shoes and peek out. A couple people are facing in my direction, and I realize how much more dangerous my situation is right now. With the secretary possibly coming back in any moment, and people on the street able to see me, this time I don't wait for the street to be empty but rather people just not paying attention, and I take my chance. I use up the rest of my luck getting out, so I don't even bother closing the window. Let him know how the theft happened, as long as I'm not caught in this moment. Mayor Big Bill Johnson steps up to the podium at the top of the broad stairs before City Hall. Reporters are fanned out ahead of him, including A.J. True, who is near the back. She had arrived just in time, not wanting to waste more time than necessary on this. In fact, she feels more like a transcriber than a reporter, just jotting down his empty words that won't mean anything when it comes time to implement them. He is in Flynn's pocket, and everyone knows it, so everything he says is going to be propaganda. He begins with the violence of the docks, stating that it will not be tolerated. Because of the riot, he will be instituting a curfew in the area near the docks after sunset. As he continues, AJ hears a sound that's become familiar recently a car engine revving louder than others and racing toward the crowd. Most people don't hear the sound which is masked behind other traffic noises, but AJ turns just in time to see a roadster jump the curb, heading straight for them. Look out, she shouts just in time to cause a rip in the mass of reporters. She notices one young man who's too fixated on the mayor to notice what's happening, and AJ leaps at him and shoves him aside just as the car skips up the first few steps. The doors open on all sides, and three passengers step out. The two from the front seat have tommy guns they use to cover the crowd. The other two, a man and a woman, have bombs they throw at the podium. The man's goes wild, exploding near the crowd, and the woman's lands right in front of the podium, exploding and sending splinters of wood and cement everywhere. Screams and cries of fear take over the sound of the boom. AJ gets a quick glance at the woman as she gets back in. She seems to notice AJ as well. Her striking blue eyes seem to pierce through her. All doors close and the roadster races backward staring towards AJ as it goes. It nearly hits a couple cars as it lurches to a stop in the street. While a driver switches gears to drive, AJ shouts, Comrade Leon! That causes everyone in the car to look at her, and she snaps a picture of them just before they take off. The smell of the darkroom at the newspaper stinks of chemicals, engine oil, and ink. The printing press is next door, making this the most unique and loudest darkroom one could ever visit. At least, is not too loud for us to speak with one another as she develops her all-important photograph. The mayor was dead, along with several nearby civilians, and a couple of his aides. It was a bold attack, one that could have been a new, rising syndicate, but seemed too extreme to be one of them. Whoever did this just wants power. They want publicity for it, and they're wanting to strike at Flynn because the mayor was his greatest ally. AJ's hand is shaking as she slides the photo paper into the fluid bath of the developer tray. I take the tongs from her and tap the paper down so it gets covered. I couldn't hear anything after the explosions, she says. I know there was screaming. I can remember each element really well. But at the time, I just became numb. If someone had pointed a gun at me, I would have stood there and took the bullet. You had the presence of mind to take a picture, I say. That's after I snapped out of it. Somehow, them leaving the steps pulled me out of the daze. I say nothing, but I nod with familiarity. That's what it was like for you. During the Great War, I grunt an affirmative. You ever talk about it with anyone? I shrug. When the explosions came, and the shots started, I became an animal. We all did. What We did what animals do. Some hid, some shot, some ran. Some pissed on the ground. And some just ran wildly at the enemy. I thought I could imagine before, but now I can't. I grunt an affirmative. And beneath us, the four faces fade into view like ghosts. It's a clear image, one that could be used to identify each individual, especially the woman in the back seat closest to the camera. My client. The streets around the docks are dark and empty, just the way Ned Flynn wants them as he's driven to the harbor. His escort consists of his limo and a caravan of his top men. His friend Big Bill is dead, murdered by terrorists, or some rival gang on the rise. Ned would have to figure all that out later. Right now he needs to take full advantage of the last gift Bill gave him. Privacy. The plan all along had been to fool the dock workers and whoever else was trying to put a stop to his operations into thinking that the first ship was the real one. This would bring his enemies out into the open and give them a false sense of success when they destroyed the decoy. The cops on his payroll had kept the prime suspects in jail, and some of them were being beaten for information. The most they had gotten was a name, Comrade Leon. They're still working on them. And now the second part is at play. The Irish Rose is pulling into port. They park near the pier where a mammoth supply ship is pulling in. Ned stops when he steps out of his car to marvel at the sight. A half dozen secretly hired scabs are standing ready to unload the supplies into a row of trucks. But this isn't just another supply run. This is proof of concept. This is the beginning of him running the entire supply chain. He joins the others in approaching the ship. Just as their work begins, more headlights pull up behind their parked cars. The clacking of doors opening rattles among them and a crowd of armed men and a few women emerge, cutting off the primary escape route. Flynn's goons ready their weapons. The scabs take cover. One figure steps forward from the line of cars, his flowing trench coat silhouetted by the diffused glow of the headlights. He tips his hat as though to say hello. Flynn steps toward him. Comrade Leon, he says. We've never had the pleasure of meeting Mr. Flynn. I've seen your handiwork. Preparations. For this. You want to work so bad? Fine. Unload the ship. Comrade Leon begins to laugh. I'm not unloading your vessel, Mr. Flynn. Consider this my resignation. Your employees are now mine. As are your businesses. They'll never work for no commie. You've missed the part where I've already won. Your protections are all destroyed. Everyone who worked for you will now work for me. Everything you have built, you have prepared for my arrival. And once I have your empire, I can grow my own. Your plans were so small. One city? I will grow the syndicate far beyond that. While Leon monologues, Flynn thinks through the situation and how to get out of it. He realizes he's in checkmate. You're a sneaky git, aren't you? You set this all up so we would end up here. Killed my peer manager so I would have to come myself. Then killed the mayor to ensure this whole area of town would be blocked off. No witnesses, Comrade Leon says, ready to order his people to start firing. But then a voice calls out from the side, deep in the darkness. Actually, there are a few witnesses. Bright headlights and spotlights flash on from both flanks, illuminating both groups. All along the elevated ground are federal troopers from the Office of Prohibition. The voice among them is County Attorney Max Doyle. Flynn laughs and looks at his nemesis. "'Looks like you're in checkmate now, comrade!' Some of the prohibition guns level on Flynn. Then Doyle responds, "'Nah, Flynn. You both are. We have the records of each of them being paid off. But they've all been given one chance to save their jobs, to bring you in. So you're with the commies now?' "'Nope,' I say from the opposite side. "'They're coming with us too. Even you, Catherine.' My former employer looks furious, yet unsettlingly confident, as she stands next to Comrade Leon. "'Mr. Griebel, she says, no longer hiding her accent. "'You are fired,' I figured,' I say. "'And you have chosen poorly.' I look at her curiously. "'All right, enough chit-chat,' Max shouts. "'Everyone put down your guns! You're under arrest!' Comrade Leon nods, and all of his people put down their guns immediately. Strangely, neither he nor Catherine look defeated." One of Flynn's men seems to think that's an invitation, and he lifts his weapon to fire. He is shot down in a hail of gunfire. All of the others put down their weapons. That was easy, AJ says next to me, as though she has the same thought I do. It was too easy. Mr. Griebel, Catherine calls. Do you know what time it is? A strange request, but I don't have a problem answering. I pull out my pocket watch to look. 12.04, and 50 seconds. My eyes grow wide as I suddenly realize why she's asking. I happen to see Leon smiling at her, and she smiles confidently back. Get down! I shout as I tackle AJ. Some of the officers heed my advice. Some do not. A couple seconds later, the entire area is ablaze. Explosions go off all over the dock. The communists seem to know exactly where Flynn's men would be standing as many of them disappear inside large blasts set off where they're standing. They clearly had not anticipated the federal officers as no explosions go off on the periphery. Despite that, however, the communists get the drop on the officers who duck for cover when the explosions go off. They are shooting covering fire in both directions while their leaders jump back into their cars. Shots come back at them a moment later, and three manage to get tagged while the others join their leaders in the cars. A moment later it's complete pandemonium as the survivors of Flynn's gang fire at everyone. Several officers go down. This primarily benefits the communists since the firing on their flanks reduces and some of the cars are able to pull out and get away but a few of them have their engines shot up, including the one carrying Leon and Catherine. I keep my head down as I hurry to this point, as does AJ behind me. We're about three-quarters of the way there when a half-burned man gets to them ahead of us. The Russian duo had gotten to another car and Catherine was getting into the driver's seat. The windshield explodes before them, and they look up to see Flynn lowering his forty-five and bull-rushing Leon. Leon, moving slow because of a hit he had taken to the shoulder, tries to get into the car first, but he only manages to swing the door open between them. Leon smashes into it, the kinetic energy sending Leon flying. Catherine fires her pistol at the figure running by her car, but misses, and he drops below the side of the window. She crawls over to the passenger side, prepared to shoot Flynn in the back, but she stops when she hears my voice in front of the car. Stay right there. She crawls over to the passenger side, prepared to shoot Flynn in the back, but she stops when she hears my voice in front of the car. Stay right there. She looks ahead with some surprise, then annoyance. You, she says, you are supposed to get more than Flynn. I did. He's going to jail for a very long time, and so are you. Catherine spots AJ standing next to me. The scowl that grows across her face tells me that she recognizes the woman who took her picture. In that moment of the three of us staring one another down, we can hear the two men on the ground fighting each other. To be honest, I don't care who wins. Another explosion goes off behind us. One that was supposed to explode with the others, but is late. It startles me, and I look back by habit. Catherine takes the initiative and levels her gun on me but AJ comes up with a twenty-two she keeps in her purse and fires right into Catherine's face. Hearing the noise causes Leon to stop and look up. Flynn takes advantage of it and punches him harder. When the police get to them, they are a mess of blood and burns. Much of Flynn's clothing is in ribbons, but much of it that's stuck to his bloody burns, and the blood from Leon's shot wound mixes with that made by cuts from Flynn's brass knuckles. They barely look human as they're led away to the squad cars. I look back at my reporter friend and find her still standing at the head of the car, just staring into the now-empty eye socket of the woman she killed. A fire has now started from the explosions, and the wood from the crates and barrels that would normally be transported now feed the flames that rise up behind her. Occasional shots still flash in the distance from either a gangster who won't give up or from bullets in a gun that's been engulfed by the Inferno. But she pays them no mind. Amy Jo True just stares with stunned fascination at what she has caused. First time, I ask. Second. This has been a presentation of RPG Storytime Gangbusters, a playthrough of Death on the Docks by Mark Akers. Subscribe to the channel to hear more tales of RPG games, or check out our YouTube channel. The link is in the description. You can also read books by the writer and game master of these stories by going to bandwagononline.com. We hope you enjoyed it, and happy gaming, everybody.